Amen. Be seated. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Numbers. If you're looking at the fancy Bible wall, it's really high up near the top. It's the beginning of, near the beginning of the Word of the Lord. As we continue our journey through, I'm trying to preach or teach through all the books of the Bible before the Lord takes me home. And uh, this one's one we've not yet covered. As we go to the reading, uh, I recognize Numbers 1 is probably not one of the chapters that you have memorized uh, for your personal devotional reading. Uh, That does not mean it's not God's Word, and it does not mean it's not useful. Hopefully, we're going to see that by the end of the sermon. If it's a bad sermon, you might still question it, but we'll still try nonetheless. I would encourage you, however, as we read, to, to pay attention to the structure not as much all of the details, right? This is one of the things that tends to happen when we get into genealogy passages or large list passages, and I am going to read a lot today. I'm shamelessly going to do it. Pay attention to the structure. There's going to be a a rhythm to it that will probably lull some of you to sleep. Don't do that. That's God's Word. Don't fall asleep, but uh, pay attention to the rhythm of what's happening, and hopefully it will be useful to us momentarily. This is God's Word. Because it has a divine author, it was written for you today. Even if you question that, it's for you today. Numbers chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. On the first day of the second month, in the second year, they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, Elizor, son of Shedur. From Simeon, Shelumiel, the son of Jerushaddai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Amminadab. From Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishema, the son of Amahud. And from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedezer. From Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai. From Dan, Ahiezar, the son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron. From Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans by fathers' houses according to the number of names from twenty years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. 
So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, those of them who were listed according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Of the people of Gad, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Gad, were 45,650. Of the people of Judah, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Judah, were 74,600. Of the people of Issachar, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from the 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. Of the people of Zebulun, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Zebulun were 54,400. Of the people of Joseph, namely... Of the people of Ephraim, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, are twenty years old and upward. Every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Ephraim were forty thousand five hundred. Of the people of Manasseh, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of their names, from twenty years old and upward. Every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Manasseh were thirty-two thousand two hundred. Of the people of Benjamin, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Of the people of Dan, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Of the people of Asher, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Of the people of Naphtali, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are those who were listed whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, twelve men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed from the people of Israel by their father's houses from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. You shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. 
And they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if anyone, sorry, and if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all the Lord commanded Moses. Probably a safe bet we need to pray after that, right? Lord, we thank you that there are easy passages in the Bible that we can read John 3.16, understand it. We can read John 1 and understand it. There's so many places we can go and it's easy and encouraging. And we thank you that there are passages like this that are neither easy nor overtly encouraging. And in doing so, they show how small we are before your word. For this is simple to you but difficult for us. Give us your spirit, we pray, in Jesus' name. What's the point? I mean, I don't want to be rude, but I know somebody thought that at some point. 54 verses. The lion's share of those middle ones where it's the same clause, followed by the same clause, followed by the same clause with a different name, with a different number. What's the point? And honestly, let's be clear, Numbers is not an easy book for many of us to access. One of the commentaries made a joke, the only people that get really excited about reading Numbers are people that are either CPAs or worked in finance departments their entire life. Right? Most of us, when we start our yearly Bible reading, we love Genesis, we love Exodus, we power through Leviticus, we get to this one and our yearly Bible reading dies. And I'll be honest, there's a primary reason I think that many of us struggle with reading books like this is because uh, we default to a very specific style of Bible reading. Most Christians, when we read the Bible, we read it with the hero-villain motif. And by that I mean when we read the Bible, we read who are the good guys or girls that I'm supposed to copy and who are the bad guys or bad girls that I'm not. Who are the people that I'm supposed to be like and who are the people that I'm supposed to avoid? That's just kind of generally how most Americans read the Bible. And in fact, it's not wrong. The Bible itself tells us that. We have that listed specifically in parts in the New Testament that these Old Testament saints and Old Testament villains are kind of put there as examples for us. Interestingly, though it's not wrong, it is, it's probably one of the weakest ways to read the Bible. If that's kind of your default way of Bible reading, I hope that today in a little bit I'm going to kind of challenge how you do that. Because what happens is when you read the Bible like that, you you come to a passage and you say, what's the point? The point of the passage is who am I supposed to be like or who am I not supposed to be like? Which works great until a passage like this. Where I'm like, I don't even know who these people are. 
I have no idea what they're doing, and none of it makes any sense. And as a result, what happens? I don't have heroes to follow. I don't have villains to avoid. And so I end up avoiding this book. Because that exemplary approach, it's biblical, it's right, it's just the weakest of ways to read the Bible. In fact, actually, what I would encourage you to have is the the primary, what's the point? Is to ask the question of any passage, what is God doing? That's a very different answer than who am I supposed to be like and who am I not supposed to be like. What is God doing places numbers within the great story of the redemption of mankind. It places us within the great story of God. It it gives us an overarching context and framework and meaning. It asks questions related to action, not just people. As I was thinking about this, kind of trying to put this in perspective, reading the Bible from the hero-villain motif is like going to a really, really nice steakhouse. I'm talking like one of the, like the nicest steakhouse you've ever been to or have never even been to. And you sit down and you're so excited for the meal. Reading from the hero-villain motif is like looking at the menu and saying, I'll have the chicken fingers. Now, they will be the best chicken fingers you've ever eaten. Don't get me wrong. They will nourish you and you will be stronger and fitter because of it. They will be delicious. But really? You're going to go to the steakhouse and get chicken fingers? Man, this is the weakest. It's the smallest. It's the, it's the, why would you do that? Coming to a passage like this and trying to ask a question like, who am I supposed to be like and who am I not supposed to be like is, is the chicken fingers. Can we please just have steak? What is God doing in the passage, now, the, the thing here is that, honestly, we're going to be clear, some passages, it's really easy. Genesis 1-1, right at the beginning, right? God's actively creating. He spoke and the world was. Well, it's obvious. God's doing something. He's making everything that is. He's making numbers in this one, and that's hard. Realistically, some passages in Scripture are easier to mine than others, right? You need different, uh, thinking again, as an illustration, two different types of gold mines. You can go to some parts of America, and uh, the gold literally flows in the rivers and the streams down the mountains. You go to Alaska and get your little pan and, you know, pan up a little little bit of gold, and you can end up gold right there. It's literally just flowing in the surface of the water. Other parts of America, you have to dig a huge mine into the very bowels of the earth to try to harvest the gold that God has placed. Numbers is not Alaska. (laughs) Numbers is that deep-seated mine where we have to put on our hard hats and travel to the center of the world to figure out what's going on. So, over the next 12 weeks or so as we look through this book, it's time to put on our mining caps. It's time to go down into the mine to see what God is doing. Now, part of this is it, it, as I mentioned, is anchored within the larger story of Scripture. I mean, if we were going to go really through the whole wall behind me, it starts out with creation. God makes everything that there is. And after making kind of everything that there is, He makes two people of utmost importance, the two most important things in all of creation. He makes Adam and He makes Eve. They are the pinnacle of creation, for they are the only things made in His image. 
So that if anything in creation wanted to know what God is like, all they had to do was go look at Adam and Eve. If Eve wanted to know what God looked like, she just had to look at Adam. If Adam wanted to know what God was like, he just looked at Eve. God made them in his image. And he told them the best deal ever. Just do what I say and you'll live forever. And by the way, the things that I'm saying to do, name the animals, take this perfect garden that you live in, expand it to the ends of the earth, and go make lots of babies. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Oh, and don't eat of that tree, which doesn't last very long, right? (laughs) They seem to sin very quickly, and God's curse comes upon them, and then all of a sudden death enters into the world, and misery enters into the world, and sin enters into the world, and the entire created order is cursed by God himself. And man alive, did he do a good job of it. And we see it every time we turn on the news, or if you're younger, you don't use the news anymore every time you open Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or whatever else you use to survey the hellscape that is modern culture. It's all broken, but yet in the midst of that sin and in the midst of that sorrow, God then steps into creation, not yet physically, but to redeem for himself a people. He chooses a man out of nowhere, a man who would never be chosen, a man who would never have any sort of relationship with God himself in Abram, later renamed as Abraham. And God makes with him what's called a covenant, a a most binding legal promise based upon the very character of God that he himself is forsworn uh, to keep forever. And in Genesis 22, that, that promise is expanded. God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord God making a vow. He himself swears. Because you have done this and not withheld your Son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. God's blessing a people. They will be his people, and he will be their God, coming from one man, Abraham, and that is traced through Isaac. And Jacob into his sons, and amazingly, you see God keeping his promise so quickly, it morphs from one family into a multitude of families that is then taken down into Egypt where they grow from just being a multitude of families into a great nation. In fact, they grow into such a great nation that though Israel is the greatest superpower known in the world at the time, they are scared of Israel in the land. Because if if Israel were to ever kind of actually get their act together and revolt against the slavery, if they were ever to have an uprising, the Egyptians were afraid they would lose. Israel had indeed become a great nation, but they were a nation under bondage, in oppression, slavery to the Egyptians, and miserable at that. Until the Lord brought them out, brought them out of the house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and brought them out in some of our favorite Bible stories, the ones you learned when you were probably in elementary school. The ten plagues, horrible things, felt darkness. I don't know what that means entirely. It sounds terrible. Frogs, water into blood, all the things I don't really want to experience. 
These plagues decimate the most powerful nation on earth. They bring Egypt to her knees, finally to the point where Pharaoh is forced to say, I'm tired of you people, you need to get out and take your God with you. Now, interestingly, they don't don't know that much about their God yet. They know that he's promised to make them into a great nation. They know that he's promised to Abraham. They know that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they don't know everything that we know. So when the Pharaoh finally sends them out, they go fleeing Egypt into the middle of nowhere, following a God that they know loosely as the God of their fathers, but not with the fullness of intimacy and the fullness of understanding and the fullness of knowledge that you would hope. And of course, they behave the way that you might expect. They grumble, they complain, they throw tantrums. Even along the way, he opens up the sea, uses the sea to swallow the greatest army known to man by this point. Egypt's army disappears in a matter of moments, and God takes them out into the wilderness, into the middle of absolute nowhere, and brings them to a base of a mountain and says, this is now your holy place because I myself will meet you here. And he begins the process of teaching them who he is. That's really what the entirety of the law was at first. It was to teach Israel who God is. And so he gave them the Ten Commandments to show them who God is. Who who is he? Well, he's one God. There are no others. He doesn't share The reason why he doesn't share is because he's the only real one. There are lots of false gods, lots of imaginary figures, but they're not real. He's the only real one. And he's not physical the way that you or I are, so you can't see him, you can't worship him as a physical thing. He's not just like us, he's other. And he's so powerful and so special that even his name gets respect. And he loves us so much that he built the entire calendar of creation. The entire created order is to be operating on the same schedule, six days of work and one day where you meet with him and rest. That's amazing. How generous of a God he is. He literally built a holiday in once a week. That was the whole plan from the, the very beginning of creation. We don't need the government to tell us to have holidays. God built it in the very created order once a week. I like that plan. But not just who he is, but also even how we are to relate to one another. We're to love each other and to treat each other with kindness and gentleness. We don't murder each other. We're not marked by infidelity. He's faithful. We are to be as well. We are people of truth. We're not people of theft. It's teaching us who our God is. And interestingly, gives them the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He gives them also on that mountain uh, the entire ceremonial law, even teaching them what Israel was to be as a nation. And friends, if you've read Leviticus, you know, if you've read Deuteronomy, man, there's a lot there, isn't there? 
As Protestants now, as confessional Reformed Christians, we read those books and we say, whoa, there's a lot of law here. There's a lot of detail. I mean, there's a lot going on when you had to offer birds and when you had to offer lambs and when you, whoo, it's a lot. But that's because he was teaching them who he was, who he is, and who he always will be. The book of Numbers picks up in the middle or to the end of that conversation. All of God's people are arrayed at the base of Mount Sinai. The Lord himself still dwelling on the top of the mountain. Moses still functioning as the go-between. Now no longer to the uh, top of the mountain, but go-between to the tabernacle, which has been opened roughly a month before we are in this passage here. Where the people of God are beginning to get to know their God. And you have to understand that would have been a very important thing because they've lived in Egypt for hundreds of years. They've had all of the stories of the Egyptian gods for hundreds of years. It's interesting. We don't really know that much about ancient Egypt in our day now, but what do we know about? The ancient Egyptian gods, because they talked about them all the time. They were everywhere. Like, you can't get past it. Isis, Osiris, they're they're everywhere. And you can understand how Israel would have been so easy for them to begin to believe the lies that the Egyptians told to forget about their God. Well, that sounds really familiar today, doesn't it? How easy it is for us to have our minds and our hearts informed by the lies the world tells about what even maybe our God is like. And so God has taken them away, he's placed them in the wilderness and has begun to teach them, begun to teach them who he is and who they are. And Numbers 1 is extremely important within that conversation. There's a lot of very important things here. One, we'll just look at very briefly a couple of these. Uh, there, believe it or not, there actually is a lot here. Verse 1, where it starts, is the important point of the book, the foundation for it all. Where it begins, it begins in the exact same place that Genesis 1 begins. It begins in the exact same place that John 1 begins. It begins with God speaking. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle which is freshly opened, and spoke to him in this very specific date to call the people of Israel to a census. Now, this is an extremely important thing to, again, remember this entire interaction is one that is initiated by God himself, and it's initiated through his word. Again, it's so important. We, we forget this. We, we, again, it's confessional Reformed Christians, so familiar with so much of the New Testament, many of us, we overlook the big stuff. That God speaks, and He has been from the beginning, and He is now, and He will continue to do so. God's voice is where His power is, His truth is in creation. He speaks. All of what follows in the book, and there's going to be a lot of things that happen, some of which might be a bit interesting to us, some of which we'll have to learn a little bit about, some of which is going to genuinely confuse us. You're like, that's in the Bible? 
That's how they tested for adultery? Really? Are you serious? That seems a bit odd. Can't believe they would do that. It all comes from the fact that God's speaking. He's declaring, He's explaining, He's revealing. God speaks into creation. And friends, uh, I would just, again, briefly emphasize, this needs to be our emphasis as well. That when we come to any sort of passage and we ask that big picture question, it's not which heroes can I copy, which villains can I avoid. We have to ask the question, what is God doing? And first and foremost here, God is speaking to us. And we have to work hard to listen. He's talking. And friends, I would, again, just gently and maybe lovingly a little bit push on you to say, how aggressively are you listening to God on a regular basis? Or how much are you listening to your television or your internet or your phone or your friends? How much are you actually learning the content of what God is saying? This is one of those most amazing things that we hear regularly now. Christians will say, well, God said such and such. You're like, no, friend, that was one of the founding fathers of our country. That's not in the Bible. Well, God said such and such. That was a lost, the TV show, like eight years ago. That's not in the Bible. Where did you hear that? We don't, we don't, we don't learn, we don't listen to what God's saying. And as a result, we get these things very, very confused, and we have ears that are confused, and minds that are confused, and hearts that are confused, instead of hearts that are devoted to listening to what God is saying. Now, interestingly, he says something very important here, and honestly, a bit surprising. What does he say? He says, Moses, go get Aaron, go get the heads of all the households, and take a census. We're going to war. Okay, that's all right, fair enough. I mean, you have to think about, again, remember what Moses and Aaron have seen. Why would God need an army? He seemed to do pretty well with the bugs and with the frogs and with the blood and with the darkness and, oh yeah, the angel and then the Red Sea. He does just fine on his own. He's just taken the greatest superpower the world has ever seen and reduced it to ashes in a matter of weeks with no help from an army. Why would God say, go take a census of the warriors? I mean, you think of Moses, you're probably going there like, wait, 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 did I hear you? Like, did you actually say what I think you're, why would we need a census, God? Why would we need to count our soldiers? Our soldiers are useless compared to you. What are they gonna do? They can't control the ocean. They can't make it come up and destroy armies. They can't send the angels in, the avengers, to destroy the land. What are they going to do? It's interesting, the Lord speaks through his word. But interesting, and this is, again, it just shocks me constantly. While he speaks through this, His primary mechanism of working today is through this. He still does miracles. We know this. We've seen them in this church 
like once every three months is pretty amazing. I've been a recipient of two of them in the last six, seven, eight months. That's pretty special. Be on the receiving end, not the witnessing end. But we forget that God's primary way of working, the way, interestingly, we could even go so far as to say the way He loves to work, is through His people. Right? Does He have the Red Sea eat the Egyptians? Yeah. It probably looked much cooler than even the scene in Lord of the Rings, right, where the river comes and the horses destroy. Way cooler than that. I can't imagine what God did. Did he destroy the Egyptians? Yeah, absolutely he did. And he did directly by the word of his power. But interestingly and weirdly and shockingly and surprisingly enough, the primary way that he works isn't through those direct, unmediated miracles. The primary way he works in and through our daily lives is through the people sitting next to you. They're the ones that have been placed here to encourage you and for you to encourage them. They're the ones who've been placed there next to you to help you understand when you're sinning and being foolish or evil. They're there to help tell you that. Or to be told by you when they're doing that. They're the people that have been placed next to you, friends. And interestingly, the command that's given here, the we're going to war, that command has never been rescinded. Israel was sent into a very specific geography with the command to kill everybody there and take over the land. That command's never disappeared. It's the same command, weirdly enough, even from the Garden of Eden. Our task has always been to take over the world. It's just we finally, praise God, got to put the swords away and pick up a better sword. Our task is no longer, thankfully, to go out and to execute the women and children. Our task is to evangelize, to share the good news. Our task is to love one another, to tell people the hope of a better life. Our task is to prepare people to die well. Our task is to take the truth of God and to spread it to the ends of the earth. And interestingly, the primary mechanism that he uses to do that is to take this word and to send it through people just like you. That's how he works. Now, does he still do miracles? Absolutely he does. Praise God. I look forward to finding out how many of these children that have been aborted over the last 40 years were my brothers and sisters that I get to see in heaven. It's going to be a marvelous day. Direct miracles that God saved them in the womb, in utero. How cool. But the primary way he works is through us. Now, realistically, some of us, it's so easy to be lulled into thinking that my life is all about me. It's all about me. When you read Numbers 1, you begin to see, actually, no, it's not actually about you at all. It's about what God is doing in the world. Here, he's about to fulfill his promise. That promise that he made in Genesis chapter 22, that covenant that he made, surely I will bless you, I will multiply your offspring as stars of heaven as sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. You're going to possess the land. How are you going to possess the land? God will send them in to do the fighting. He uses people to accomplish his ends. Now, realistically... I think 
through my reading, my understanding, my thinking, I, I think we are in, this is not gospel truth, this next paragraph, I, my understanding is we're in a bit of an, an existential crisis as a nation. We, we've had as a nation kind of a, a corporate identity and sense of meaning, uh, really since our nation was founded that's lasted, but really since the 60s, and I would say even more aggressively since about 1995, our nation's sense of identity and worth and meaning is eroding. And we're turning out roughly two generations right now that as generations have no idea of what their larger purpose in the world is. They've been told that they're special. They've been told that they're the best. They've been told that that everything in life is about them. And they live daily knowing the internal gap between that lie and the way they actually feel. And the burden of that pressure is killing them. So they are wrestling with this. I've been told that I'm the key to human flourishing, that that I'm the center of the world, but I don't feel very special. I don't feel very gifted. I don't feel very good. And then it, it kind of produces this just general nihilism and just blah toward life. And we're watching a generation of meaninglessness. If you haven't figured it out, that's why the terrible, terrible news in Texas with this shooting. Awful. That's why we're seeing these more and more and more and more is because we're, we're producing children that have no value in their minds. No meaning. And part of that is because we're producing a generation of children that don't understand the primary way that God works in the world is through you. Just being faithful just loving one another. I would say directly to the children of this church, you are vital for the life of this church because God works through you. At three years old, at four years old, at 40 years old, at 80 years old, God works through you. I mean, it's even pretty clear. He says, out of the mouth of babes, he's ordained praise kind of big mark of Jesus' ministry is that he had children with him all the time. People of God, God's working through you. Very quickly, he's raising up an army, tells them to go take the census. We got to verse 20 where we started in on the description of who these people are. We got Reuben, Israel's firstborn, the generations by their clans, and that was about where you stopped listening. Extreme people of fortitude, you probably made it to verse 23, Simeon, and then you stopped listening. I had to keep listening because I was reading it. This is my favorite part, actually, of this passage. Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali with these numbers. It's my favorite part because actually what the numbers mean. You see, these numbers are ridiculously big numbers. Like shockingly big numbers. We had roughly 12 families turned into 13 families that over the space of 
400 years went from, if this math is correct, went from 13 families to roughly 2.5 million people in the space of 400 years. Apparently, they liked making babies. They did a good job of it. Lots of them. You see, the important point here, and the point you're like, I'm not getting what you're talking about, Michael, is that God is actually showing in this list specifically that he has kept his promise. In Genesis 22, where I said, Surely I will bless you, and surely I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Friends, this is a list that God keeps his promises. Reading the different commentaries on this book is really fun because you can tell kind of how conservative a person is, how much they love the Bible, and how many of them are like, look, these numbers are so big, there's no way God could have provided it. One of them actually literally said that. There's no way God could have provided that many people. I'm like, did you, did you read what you just wrote? Where is your editor saying, eh, scratch that, that's just really bad theology? Oh. Hey, these numbers are absolutely massive. Reuben, there's a reason why it comes down to Reuben. It's from one couple. The Lord's brought 46,500 men between the ages of 20 and 65 that are ready to go to war. Simeon, one man and his wife, the Lord's brought 59,300 men between 20 and 65 that are ready to go to war. Gad, 45,650. Judah, 74,600 in the space of 400 years. You see what this is? This is a list. Well, maybe the, the old way that some of you probably grew up saying is, when you were grumbling and complaining, mom and dad would tell you, go count your blessings. You ever heard that phrase? Usually thrown in your face when you're being a grumpy Gus. Right? Go count your blessings. That's what this list is. It's the people of God counting their blessings. Look at how faithful our God is. Look at how faithful he is. You took this fledgling nation of 13 families that had no hope of making it. You sent them down to Egypt where they were enslaved, and they come back 400 years later with 600,000 fighting men. Best guess, this is at this point probably the second to third largest fighting force army on planet Earth at this point, most likely. It's huge. It's so big. Again, half the commentaries I consult are like, it can't be real. We don't know why the numbers are wrong because that's exactly what the text says, but it can't be real. It's too big. Surely God couldn't bless them that much. And I laugh at that when I read those. I was like, just come be a member of Christ Ridge for a couple of years. Right? You're going to be able to say, surely God can't bless us that much. Spend all week just thinking about that. What a, what a, a parallel to the story. How wonderful. A nation that 400 years ago was 13 families. A church that 14 years ago was 18 people. And we have story after story after story after story of God keeping his promises to us. He's answered our prayers time and time again, more than we can count. He's given us miraculous answers to prayer that we would never have been able to guess. He's given us money we never thought we'd be able to have. We got a building we never thought we'd be able to build. I love telling those stories. 
One I told just recently, it's one of my favorites, when Tom and I met with uh, the guys designing the building and the guys building the building. That's my favorite meeting. Tom had finally figured out what the exact dollar amount was that we had available. And he said, guys, we have $734,000 available. I will remember this conversation for the rest of my life. And Tom, classic sense of humor, the way you know Tom said, said, if it's $735,000, you will either have to pay $1,000 or we will have to push pause on the building until we can figure out where to get that. We do not have access to $734,001. We have access to seven hundred and thirty-four, dollars and that's it. And so we built a building that cost $1.1 million. <laughs> and God did it. We never had to push pause. We didn't have to go figure out how to steal, you know, rob a bank. God provided all of the money. And interestingly, how did he provide the money? Let's think about this. Oh, yeah, my previous point in the sermon. Who did he use to do it? You. You did it all. The Lord did it through you. Now we're paying aggressively, prepaying every bit of debt that we possibly can. We don't have enough room. Go to the fellowship meal last week. Oh my goodness, we're virtually sitting on top of the tables having like a double-decker fellowship meal. We don't have enough room for people. Friends, what I'm kind of challenging you to see, hopefully with a little bit of goodwill, is that the Lord loves you and he's keeping his promises to you. Now I know that I like telling the happy stories, but there have been really sad ones too. I tell the happy ones to prepare us for the sad ones. Because when you go through the sad days, he's no less keeping his promise. He's no less good in the ICU than he is in this room. He's no less good when the tears come as when he gives you the happy tears. He's no less good at a funeral than he is in the labor and delivery room. We have numerical proof. He keeps his promises, and he's never once broken them. And what you need to understand is that you are God's child. Every promise that he has made to you, he's keeping. We get to see this even further in the New Testament. It's my favorite where it says that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. See, these people here, they had God's promises, but they they had to look forward with no proof that God would actually do it. They They didn't know for sure that God would follow through. They had to hope. We don't have that. We have it past tense. We know that he keeps his promises because we have Jesus who is the yes and amen to every one of them. He lived, he died, he was raised, he is mine. And because he's mine, God is mine and I am his. Nothing inside creation can alter that fact. In fact, actually, that's why the the last part of the chapter is so important. It seems like a bit of a weird change of gear, right? You you count all of the fighting men, ready ready to go to war, but then, oh yeah, by the way, the Levites weren't counted. Because the Levites have a really important job in their own right. They don't get to go be warriors. That's a really fun job, important job. You get to go fight. That's important and good. These guys are the administrators of the tabernacle of God. 
Because the final point that God makes here is so interesting is, why is it you don't have to be afraid that God is calling you to be a warrior in the kingdom of God? Why is it that you can have confidence that God keeps his problems? Because he goes with you. Why are the Levites there? Why are they doing what they're doing? It's because God is with Israel. They have the tabernacle. That's the house. At this point in time, he's actually residing in. Literally, he's there with them. Moses' face is still glowing from being in the presence of his glory. He goes with them. Now, the fun part is this is a part of the the chapter that's completely done away with in the New Testament. We don't have a God who resides in a building. That's why we lock this building as soon as you step outside into the heat. He doesn't reside in this building. He resides in Christ and in his spirit with the people of this building. He goes with us. And friends, when you step out of this place and step into the next place that God will take you and then you head home and go about the busyness of the rest of your week, he will go with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Some of you are going to have great and easy weeks. Praise God for that. Yay. Your task is to do what we confessed in our confession of sin, that in the easy times you don't forget about him. Some of you are going to walk out of here and have a really dreadful week. I hope that's not the case, but somebody, it's likely. hundred and something people in here, it's, odds are high somebody's going to. And for you, your task is to remember he has not forgotten you. He has not left you. He has not broken his promises. He is with you even then because he is your God and you are his people. Brothers and sisters, the abiding God lives with us that we might live for him. We praise him for Christ who is accomplishing all of these things Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, even the really hard parts. Thank you for your promises. For Christ's sake, amen.